0: Good evening, everyone. Good to see you this evening. I enjoyed that time tonight as we were together and listened to the prayer ministries. And I trust that you'd take that card that's there if you're not part of one of those ministries or that call to prayer and join that and be a part of it. Oftentimes we wonder in our lives and perhaps why God isn't blessing you. Have not because you ask not. When we ask and when we seek, when we knock. It's amazing how we receive, find, and God opens doors, and we ought to be a praying people, at least known as a praying church, amen? And we ought to do that. I appreciate the the, the uh, exposure this evening to some of those ministries, and if you've not been a part of those, those are things you may want to be involved in. It's a good time. The songs we just sang, Jesus, draw me close, let the world fade away. If we could do that, it would be wonderful. Tonight we're in... The fifth part of a six-part series entitled, Why Do We Live and Think the Way We Do? Did everyone receive a handout who came in this evening? Do you have one? Someone need one. We're going to need those this evening as we look on, and perhaps we can have a couple of the ushers help us. And so what we're going to do is ask you to hold your hand up as they make those available. Uh, this is a handout we hadn 't planned on doing this one, but after we did the uh, a handout two weeks ago, um, it was uh Encourage that we write another one. And so now you have another eight-page handout in front of you. I hope you find those beneficial. Uh, Anyway, uh, this one is going to be dealing with some matters that takes off from the last one. And next week we wrap up this series and then begin another series that's going to go several weeks. It's actually one of my favorite series that we've ever preached, and we wanted to write on it years ago. It's dealing with the apostles, and we'll be introducing that one uh, uh, November 1st. We have the end of this series next week and then we have that special concert on the 25th and then a new series begins in November. And so if you hold your hands for just a moment, we'll make sure that everyone receives one of these handouts. One of the songs we did not sing this evening is in the introduction to this handout and I'm not going to lead it for, for you'd know why I'm not going to lead it. But you do know this song, all right? It's a song of truth. Gary, can you come up here for a moment? All right. I need a voice. All right, and it's not mine. Stand with me for a moment, and let's sing a song. The children sing it, but it's a great truth. Okay. The B I B L E, now that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B I B L E. One more time. B-I-B-L-E, yes that's the book for me. I stand alone the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. All right, there you go. I put the words on the sheet in case you didn't know it. (laughs) Actually, as you look at the introduction, all Christians love and venerate the Word of God, the Bible, but no tradition of Christianity, I believe, loves and venerates it more than Bible-believing conservative Christians. That would be us. For them, the Bible is the fundamental and it is our authority for our religious life. We simply call it truth. It is our truth. And everything mentioned in that song above speaks of a body of people, as you look on the sheet, who believe they have access to truth. Truth. Who believe that truth sincerely and personally, and who believe they must share that truth. And therein is the rub today. Nearly every one day, and let's shift it now to we, make this first person plural. Whenever we encounter folks outside the Christian community and any more within it, we've written here, they take issue and they're starting to take issue with our beliefs. It has become fashionable today, as we've been in this series and talking about our culture to speak of the theological posture of the Western civilization and American intellectual culture in particular as post-Christian. I'm going to stop for just a moment. And I'm holding a copy I made. I actually have the article in my office. It's Newsweek magazine just a couple of months back. And the title of the entire magazine was dedicated to the theme, Beyond a Christian Nation. And here's how the article begins in this spring edition, and it starts talking with an illustration by John Meacham. He writes, it was a small detail, a point of comparison buried in the fifth paragraph on the 17th page of a 24-page summary of the 2009 American Religious Identification Survey, A-R-I-S is how it's been known. But as Al Mohler, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, one of the largest on earth, read over the document after its release in March, he was struck by a single sentence. For a believer like Moeller a starched, unflinchingly conservative Christian, steeped in the theology of his particular province of the faith, devoted to producing ministers who will preach the inerrancy of the Bible and the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only means to eternal life, the central news of the survey was troubling enough. The number, and here was the central theme of this article that appeared this summer, the number of Americans who claim no religious affiliation has nearly doubled since 1990. Rising from 8 to now more than 15%. The article goes on to say While we remain a nation decisively shaped by religious faith, our politics and our culture are, in the main, less influenced by movements and arguments of an explicitly Christian character than they were even five years ago. Going on a little bit further, Page, this is page 38 of that Newsweek magazine, skipping about six paragraphs. In the Newsweek poll just conducted, fewer people now think of the United States as a Christian nation than they did so when George W. Bush was president. Two-thirds of the public, 68% of Americans, now say religion is, here's a quote, losing influence in American society. The proportion of Americans who think religion can, quote, answer all of today's most troubling problems, unquote, is now at a historic low of 40%. During the Clinton era, it was 58%. Many conservative Christians believe they have lost the battles over issues such as abortion, school prayer, even same-sex marriage, and that the country has now entered a post-Christian phase. That's as of this summer. To be post-Christian has meant different things at different times. For instance, Meacham writes, In 1886, the Atlantic Monthly described George Eliot as post-Christian, and that was over 120 years ago, using the term as a synonym for atheist or agnostic. The broader or, for our purposes, more relevant definition is that post-Christian characterizes a period of time that follows the decline of the importance of Christianity in a region or a society. I'll skip three more paragraphs, which is precisely what troubles Dr. Al Moeller the most. He quotes, The post-Christian narrative is radically different, Moeller says, It offers spirituality, however defined, without binding authority, he told me. He's telling Meacham. It is based on an understanding of history that presumes a less tolerant past and a more tolerant future. With the present as an important transitional step. That's the end of Moeller's quote. Now the Newsweek writer goes on to say, The present in this sense is less about the death of God and more about the birth of many gods. The rising numbers of religiously unaffiliated Americans are people more apt to call themselves spiritual rather than religious. So we've been talking about the past few weeks. We are living in a nation that is interested in spiritual things. Don't ever be misled into thinking that they're talking about knowing God on a deep level. They're just interested in the metaphysical and those, those kind of questions. Back to our handout, if you would, please. Anyway, we are described anymore in America as post-Christian. And that's recognized in the secular media, in the universities, and across our nation. And that means, and what does that mean? Even as Al Mohler and others said, post-Christian means that historic Christianity or conservative Christianity, as you and I call ourselves, are having less influence than at any time in our country's history, even less than we did just, what, five years ago. Our most important influential... This is three lines now up farther from that break here on the sheet, if you look on page one again of this handout. Our most influential in culture shaping institutions. And remember a few weeks ago we talked about how we do theology. We use the Word of God and then we read that Word of God through lenses that have been shaped, fashioned, and we see through called our culture. We bring our culture to the text. We would like not to, but we're a product of our culture, our growing up and the things that we've heard. Our most important influential and culture-shaping institutions and professions, whether it be law, medicine, education, science, media, and the arts, no longer accept the presuppositions of a biblical worldview, our beliefs as part of their philosophical framework. Hence, we live in a post-Christian era. So. First things first, just a quick review. Let's just run through this rather quickly. We talked about this in detail for a couple of weeks. In general, next paragraph, our Western culture then is deeply post-Christian, Europe more so than America. It is the product of the Enlightenment, the kind of thinking in the 17th and 18th centuries, which introduced into European culture the leaven of secularism that has by now permeated the whole of Western society. The hallmark of the Enlightenment was the pursuit of knowledge by means of unfettered human reason alone. We elevated man at the center of his world, our world. While it is by no means inevitable that such a pursuit must lead to non-Christian conclusions, the overwhelming impact of the Enlightenment mentality has been that Western intellectuals do not consider theology to be a source of genuine knowledge, and today they don't even look at it anymore as a science. Reason and religion are today at odds with each other. The physical sciences, in other words, truth found through the sciences. And when we hold to that, they view religion then, or our faith as religious superstitions. Miracles are dismissed. We put all our faith in the, the empirical, the hard sciences. Are taken as authoritative guides. The person who follows the pursuit of reason unflinchingly toward its end will ultimately end up what? What's become popular today then? Becoming Atheistic, or at best, agnostic. Over the recent centuries there have been countercurrents to Enlightenment rationalism on the current scene. We've talked about it. Postmodernism is such a movement. Postmodernism rejects the all sufficiency of human reason championed by free thought. Now, on the footnote on the bottom of page one, Just by way of review, if you haven't been here, if you have, we've talked about it. But I'll just read a couple of paragraphs. And so if you'll follow along there, postmodernism came into vogue, came into fashion. It was the rage of discussions during the late 80s and the 90s. The term, I believe, is overused today. But what were its hallmarks? Just as a reminder, the central idea that gave rise to postmodernism is the denial that absolute truth can be known. According to postmodernism, the subjectivity or the personal opinions or reasonings or the differences of the human mind make it impossible to discover truth, certain truth. Objectivity then, people who can claim to know something for certain, that's an illusion they say. In addition, when most persons hear postmodernism, the two words they think of are what? Tolerance and diversity. And those words are ringing all over our country because those are primary virtues postmodernism has elevated above every other moral value. Another feature of postmodernism is its suspicion. And I've underlined that in my notes. Suspicion, almost contempt for any claim that is made with certainty or authority. And so, by the way, if you say, this is truth, this is why, this is why abortion is wrong, this is why homosexuality is, This is wrong, here it says right here, and when you make a statement that forceful or authoritative, you are almost, as we said here, not only disdained, but you are, at that point, put out to, I don't want to hear a thing you have to say, you are completely an intolerant person. Besides these classic characteristics, there are others. Postmodernism generally prefers subjectivity to objectivity. They're skeptical of logic and they distrust history. So they will... remake. And it's become very fashionable today to do revisionist history. Tell the story as you understand it or how it makes sense in your mind. And perhaps one of the most famous of those movie makers that has been doing it for the last 20 years as a complete postmodern movie producer is Oliver Stone. How many of you have heard of his name or are familiar with him? And he will remake a movie all the way from John F. Kennedy's death all the way to... Pocahontas as one of the graphic cartoon movies. You understand what I'm saying? But retell it entirely. Only let's look at it through different eyes and different perspectives. It's a revisionist story of history. And it's done in all quarters and in books. It's fashionable to do that today. As a result, postmodern thinking like that then questions every form of dogmatism. But most significantly, notice here, postmodernism is hostile to every worldview that makes any claim to truth. In fact, it is fair to say that the whole idea of a worldview, how you view history and the world, is about as unpostmodern as possible. Postmodernism could be defined in a nutshell as the belief that no single worldview offers a universally and objectively true perspective on life and reality. And we hold this book and say, this is the totality of a worldview. And as a result, they don't want to hear us. They ought to. But this isn't surprising to God. That's what we're dealing with. And he's told us how we can deal with that world. I'm going to go back to the bottom sentence of page one real quickly. We said there this might seem. We said postmodernism rejects the all sufficiency of human reasoning. It would seem that good. We've brought we've taken man off the centerpiece of his the throne of thinking, and that might seem at first blush a welcome development for Christians weary of centuries of attacks by Enlightenment rationalists. But in this case, the cure is worse than the disease. For postmodernists deny that there are universal standards of logic and truth. This claim is incompatible with the Christian idea of a God who as creator and sustainer is an objectively existing reality and who as a, an all-knowing being has a privileged perspective on the world. There is thus a unity and objectivity to truth that is incompatible with postmodernism. Postmodernism is therefore no more friendly to Christian truth claims then is the enlightenment. For the past few years we have been asking ourselves the question, how then do we persuade others of the truth of the gospel in a culture where a variety of beliefs, rationalities exist. In any case, enlightenment rationalism is so deeply embedded in western intellectual life that these anti-rationalistic currents like postmodernism are doomed. Do you know that? So people say, well, I'm not really a deep student of postmodernism. Just hang on. It's kind of like clothes that went out of fashion 20 years ago. They're coming back, okay? Praise God, the 70s may never come back. But besides all that, all right, postmodernism, too, is a, just another stage. And that's what we're talking about here, okay, It's just a passing. Think about it for a moment. When they say, well, there's no, you can't read something and know for certain. Just ask the question. No one adopts a postmodern view of literary text when reading labels on a medicine bottle or baby formula or reading the directions of an operating computer. Well, what does it mean to you? I don't know, whatever you want. No, we don't think that way. In the end, people turn out to be subject. They will apply subjectivity really then in only two realms. And we put those, one is ethics, the other is religion. So they're going to pick and choose if they want to be modern, postmodern, etc. And it's going to leave it to those two realms. Not about matters provable by science. But this is not postmodernism. This is really nothing else than classic Enlightenment naturalism. It's the old modernism in a fashionable new guise. And realizing that is going to prove critical to us as Christian ambassadors. In the past few years, the popularity of some postmodern theory and deconstruction in particular has waned. This is not to say, and it's, it's actually now starting to move out. And that's why when we introduced this series, we were talking about why do we think the way we do. In our world, we're actually passing into a post-modern era. Go over to page 3 as we then leave here. But that is not to say that our culture, especially Generation Y and the NetGen and the Millennials, are not deeply influenced today. Postmodernism is being questioned and adapting our theology and methodology to incorporate postmodern thinking and techniques should be questioned as to its wisdom. And by the way, there are numerous theologians and that's what we've put in footnote three. Today, numerous theologians and people who write our theology books are getting caught up in postmodernism and, and that methodology of thinking at the same time that it's starting to go out the back door. And you just have to wonder, why would you be doing that now? The questioning of deconstruction Has not, however, brought a return to the acceptance of biblical truth. The enemy, by the way, is just taking us now onto a different scene. The postmodern paradigm in general is still intact, but it did take a severe blow, especially after the incident of 9 11. Does all the confusion in the new pagan postmodern world provide a context in which Christians cannot just speak a prophetic word but also offer an alternative and answers? Theologian Diogenes Allen, who teaches at Princeton, says so, and he's a believer, he writes. Notice on page 3. In a postmodern world, Christianity is intellectually relevant. It is relevant to the fundamental questions of why does the world exist and why does it have its present order rather than another? It is relevant to the discussion of the foundations of morality in society, especially on the significance of human beings. The recognition that Christianity is relevant to our entire society and relevant not only to the heart but to the mind as well is a major change in our cultural situation. In other words, even though people say we live in a post-Christian era, and why do we need the Christian answers? They don't offer us hope. They don't offer us answers. You know what? They can dismiss us, but we do have the answers. We do have truth. It is life-changing, folks. It will change their life. How do post-modernism and pluralism show themselves? And let's start getting practical. That was all the theology theory behind what we've been discussing. Page 3. We're more interested in how does this stuff... How is it showing up in our world where I live, in my living room, across my television, in my church? A common concern now seems to emerge whenever ministers gather. They talk about this. Ministry is stranger than it used to be. And I've written here, not that ministry is more difficult, more tiring, or more demanding. Just different And increasingly strange. The strangeness of our ministries in our day can be seen in Bible studies, which do not study the Bible, but are psychological exercises in self discovery, or seen in the cafeteria style morality practiced by so many church members, for instance, and in the growing acceptance of other religions as valid paths to salvation. And we're hearing those things even within Christian quarters, page four. Though few church leaders of the past two decades would articulate the word postmodern, many churches have been influenced by the spirit of a postmodern age. The telltale sign of written here of postmodern influence in a church is the never-ending quest for relevance. And what is lost in the quest for relevance is boldness to stand for truth. The biblical response to reaching a lost world for Christ is not cultural adaptation, but countercultural proclamation. Not trying to be odd, just trying to show the alternate truth, what God says. Effective evangelism does not take place when the church looks like the world. You ever think about that? We have something to offer you, and they look at us and go, I don't see anything different. Rather, real evangelism takes place when the church proclaims a message that is counter to the postmodern pluralistic spirit. Now, let me give you a couple of examples, and then I'm just going to make some applications of this because next week we bring it all home with the texts of Scripture. What are some examples of change and choice and challenges facing us as a result of postmodern thinking and why we make the choices we do and not some of the different choices that are brought toward us? A theologian that I use as a textbook in seminary He wrote a few years back Christian Theology, Millard Erickson, has over the years written several other wonderful pieces. Just a few years ago, about three years ago, he brought forth the publication, What Does God Know and When Does He Know It? How many of you are familiar with the old debate? We used to call it, it's been 400 years, came out of what's called Protestant scholasticism and actually the debate goes back longer before that, but I'll just put it in these two terms, Calvinism, Arminianism. Okay, several of us do. And it's, it asked the old question, um, when did God know? This was in the 17th century. They were wrestling with the issue because Catholics were wrestling with the issues at several universities of Bologna, Paris, Milan, etc. And they were wrestling with the question then of did, when did God know who the elect were prior to creation? Did he choose the elect prior to the fall or after the fall? And they came up with all kinds of terms like supra, infra, and sublapsarianism. And then he got into those kind of debates. For most of us, we go, okay, I'm really deeply interested in that. And there are people who give their whole lives to that study. And we can get into those debates. The fact that it's been going for 400 years... When I get around seminarians or pastors and they're deeply arguing with it, it's like, I think I'm going to rather go golfing because if greater men than this haven't settled it in 400 years, these two guys aren't either, okay? (laughs) Correct? And we're wasting good golf time. It is very important, and I don't mean to make light of it in the least. Erickson, though, wrote a piece dealing with something because a few years ago, a major debate began again. And that is, a whole new body of theology started to make its way through the evangelical world. It started about 15 years ago. became known as open theism. And the idea then that the future is open, God has in his mind, does know the scope of human history. He does know, as we've been preaching through Revelation on Sunday mornings, as Stephen has been taking us through that, God does know the events. But what about in your life? Some of the events. Is he concerned with the transmission going out of your car tomorrow morning? Okay. Does he know You'll be ill, or one of your children will next week. Does he concern himself with details like that? Okay. And so the future in those areas may be open. All right? Erickson, in response to that, is going to say no, but he writes this. Both in popular culture and in conservative Christian cultures, uh, circles, notice, a certain idea of God is held. The very idea of God seems to include that he is able to do all things and that he knows everything. We call it omniscience. In approximately the last 15 years, however, a rather different view has begun to be announced. Several theologians, calling themselves open theists, have begun to challenge the conventional view. Self-identified as evangelicals, these theologians have agreed that God has complete and perfect knowledge of the past. And that he also has exhaustive and accurate knowledge of all present truth. He even knows part of the future, so, so much so that he could write the book of Revelation. However, there are other future events that God does not know. And these are those that involve free human will. In most cases, by the way, how many of you believe God has given us a free will? By the way, put your hand up, okay? He has. Notice, in most cases, God does not know what a given human is going to do until that person actually decides to act. That's what open theists say. These open theists contend that their view is not only in accord with Scripture, but is even more so than the traditional or classic view. Open theists also assert that this is not some lack in God, however. God knows everything that can be known. There's the caveat. The difference between their view and the traditional view, they declare, is not over the nature of God at all, but over the nature of the future. The issue is not the doctrine of God, but the doctrine of creation. Interestingly, We have had a revival of interest in the doctrine of God, the first of the doctrines to have been articulated. Yet this time it involves not the question of God's triunity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but a different aspect of the doctrine, namely His knowledge and specifically divine foreknowledge. I would circle those two words. It is not as if the issues posed by the open theists had never been raised before. Some of the very issues involved in this dispute, such as the compatibility of human freedom and divine foreknowledge of those acts, had been debated from the very early days of church history. This was not always done in isolated, by isolated individuals who fell outside the mainstream of church's life and thought. Now, however, a sizable and articulate group of theologians is pressing the point. Why do we raise that? So far, it sounds like a strictly academic discussion, and so... Leave it to Berggraf and those guys who are theolog. Let, let them do that. That's what they do for a living, those doctorates of theology. Why should I worry about something like that? Let them argue about that in seminary. And so, Bill, what, that's what we'll do in seminary. We'll talk about this kind of discussion in just a few weeks as we get on to the nature of God in Theology 1. Okay? So this will be a heated discussion in a seminary class right here at Shepherds. And so it's for the seminary. I beg to differ with you. Remember we said, who does theology to Esau? Who does theology? All of us. Okay? Eric rightly observes. Turn over to page 5 if you would. This is not merely an academic question. Folks, this questioning of things that we called solid truth for many, many years, and when we just sort of the last 20 years thrown it wide open because that's how we're thinking today in our culture. This is not merely an academic question debated by scholars, but unrelated to the life of the ordinary Christian. Not on your life. Important matters of Christian living are involved, he writes. When we pray, do our prayers make a difference? We just spent 15 minutes tonight hearing about a ministry in which enlisting you... And me to become a part of praying for needs. Job seekers and others praying for their needs. Well, if God knows, and if God doesn't care, why? Pray. And Erickson observes that. When we pray, do our prayers make a difference? Or is everything that will happen already determined? If God answers our prayers, is he wise enough to know what will be best in the future? Or might he knowingly grant something that turns out to be evil? Does God have a plan for our lives? And is it based on the knowledge of what will happen? Are we really free or are we simply doing what we are programmed to do? And perhaps most seriously, does God knowingly allow or even cause things that he knows will lead to evil and suffering in the future? Or is he unaware of such consequences? In several different ways from opposite perspectives, the questions come down to this. Can we trust God? Those are big questions. All right? We're hanging our future, our faith, our salvation, our eternity on that. We're living in a day of great interest, as we said, in spiritual matters. Talked about that even a little this morning. And on page 5, we talk about and mention this morning, Dan Brown's books have... have demonstrated that there's an interest in spiritual matters today, such as his books, The Da Vinci Code, which came out a few years ago, or his then next one, Angels and Demons, about the election of a Catholic Pope, or his most recent, that, as we said, is out three weeks now, called The Lost Symbol. And when Stephen returns to Revelation, you're going to hear him take an excerpt out of it on the way that Dan Brown's fictional character in his book just blasts the book of Revelation. I think Stephen will go crazy over that one. And so he's <laughs> going to use it as an illustration. But don't interpret that as an interest in traditional religion, even traditional Christianity. Something's going on today in our churches. Did postmodernism come to church? In the 1970s and 80s, God raised leaders to give new life and vision. This is this is a young pastor, by the way. He's an emergent pastor. He's called. His name is Dan Kimball. He's a graduate of Dallas Seminary, and he graduated and became and was part of the staff, I believe, at Willow Creek for a while, and then he's left and he's now helped establish and is a leading writer for the emergent church movement. This is a movement that has grown so well that Zondervan Publishing has even devoted part of their publishing arm to the emergent church ministry. There are several emergent churches in our area. In the 1970s and 80s, God raised leaders to give new life and vision to dying churches. God used and still uses churches that employ seeker-sensitive methodology to draw hundreds of thousands of people across North America back to Jesus and to his church. It became known as the seeker-sensitive movement. The values of these churches were birthed specifically out of the leader's desire to identify with the people they were hoping to reach. Even if a church did not fully embrace a seeker-sensitive strategy, many churches at least adopted many of its contemporary approaches to ministry. The emphasis on creating a place for seekers to come meant emphasizing the weekend service as the entry point to the church. Contemporary architecture was developed for worship buildings along with new approaches, and I have some typos here, to preaching and communication. One of the first things, by the way, look this way for a minute. One of the first things that I ever noticed when I went into one of these newer churches was they removed everything that resembled church from them. They did not want to offend Uh, non-religious Harry and Sally. Okay, They wanted to get young 20-somethings to come to church and then would have dramas or skits or some mini-presentation and then there would be a beautifully packaged and I've listened to many of them and they run a clinic on how to preach a 20-minute message but they would then run a brief message that would then show, well, here's how to address the needs in your marriage or the needs in your home or at your job. Receive Christ as Savior and then they would send them back out or become part of a group in the church. Dramas, videos, and production staff were added to larger churches to help make the weekend services more professional. Even Garth Brooks-type headsets were used to show that we were really keeping up with the times in our hip-to-current culture. They weren't this size. They were actually bigger. Okay, I had to put that in or you're looking at me going, you're wearing one of them. Based on my observations and conversations, however, I think that many of these things... Kimball writes, are contrary to what emerging generations value and are seeking in their spiritual experience. What I'm talking about is, and let me just tell you what happened, and then, and then I'll read this for you. The church growth movement among our evangelical churches really took off in the 70s and 80s. The churches became filled with 20-somethings. Through the 70s and the 80s. And a lot of the churches that were 5, 10, 8, uh, 18,000 members initially had a lot of folks and were populated by folks between 30 and 45 years old. And then, in the late 1990s, 98, 99, 2000, they began to do some studies of the churches to look around and went, wait a minute. A lot of the people now sitting in our church of 10,000 had hairlines like mine, okay? Or they're white. Or they're coming, they look like this. Handsome, but they still look like this, all right? Meaning they're older. There was less of a percentage of 20-somethings. Where were they? Why weren't the 20-somethings coming to church the way they used to come in the 80s? Maybe the new 20-somethings. Well, the bottom line is this. The 20-somethings said, if we want to watch a play, we're not going to go to church. We'll go to Broadway. And if we want to watch video clips, we'll go to a what? We'll go to a movie. And if we want to hear people up performing like rock stars, we'll go to a rock concert you understand what I'm saying? And they decided, because if I want to learn about God, I'm going to go to church to learn about God. Therefore, church should be about... But they were finding that many of their pastors were starting to act like David Letterman and Jay Leno in the stand-up comics to entertain people. But if I want to hear that, I'll watch late-night TV because when I go to church, I want to hear about God. That's what Kimball and the young men who were at our seminaries during the 90s said. And that's why we started to see the slope of the line just start to drop off by about 2,000. And we birthed something said. There's out of our circles coming or emerging a different movement. We're going to go back to the past let me read an illustration that the Presbyterian magazines put out. It goes like this. Just listen for a moment. This is written by Chuck de Grote, a growing hunger for honesty and authenticity. Here's what de Grote writes it goes like this. Counselor and Chuck de Grote, in a growing hunger for Honesty and Authenticity describes what is happening today in Christian homes on a regular basis. He writes about the reaction many parents are living through when their college-age son now returns from the big university. This was written in 2007. He returns home from his first break, and you begin to notice some strange and disturbing patterns. As you ask him about his faith, he's elusive. At church on Sunday, he seems uncomfortable and irritable. You begin wondering if this is it, the moment every Christian parent dreads. Has your son abandoned the faith? At Sunday dinner, you muster the courage to ask, and his response floors you. Dad and Mom, I've got something to share with you. I'm frustrated with our church. It doesn't tackle the deep issues I am wrestling with. Here it comes. This is it. You grab each other's hands, and then he says this. Dad and Mom, whatever happened to those old hymns? My campus director plays guitar, and he's got all these old hymns that I have never heard or I don't hear in our church anymore, and they're so relevant to my struggles. And whatever happened to the Lord's Supper, man, that's the good stuff. That's where I can lay it on the line with Jesus and bring him my fears and dreams. And whatever happened to the Bible... When I was young, I loved hearing the stories and struggles of faith. They reached me. I wish our pastor told fewer jokes and focused on some of the real-life stories in the Bible and the church. And then he says, you don't know as a parent whether to laugh or to cry. growth then adds that today, parents are telling more and more stories like this one. A strange convergence of ancient ways of the faith and radically new forms of expression is happening and it's happening in ways that might surprise you. What he describes is the emerging generation's faith and the resultant expression of that faith is the emerging church. Now, before we get all excited about it, I want you to read on just a little bit further. I'm going to have to close here in just a few minutes. Page 5 on the bottom, we are very likely to see the pattern of past generations repeated as churches lost. Touch with the culture and didn't connect with younger generations, the seeker sensitive movement was born. This time, however, it is the seeker-sensitive movement that loses touch as it grows more and more disconnected with the heart of emerging generations. On the back cover of Kimball's book, page six, he explains that the seeker-sensitive movement revolutionized the way evangelicals did church and introduced countless baby boomers to Christ. Yet trends show that today's post-Christian generations are not responding like the generations before them. As we enter a new culture, Cultural era what do worship services look like that are connecting with the hearts of emerging generations how do preaching, leadership, evangelism spiritual formation, most of all how we even think of church need to change Kimball then writes currently in our culture when someone refers to a seeker sensitive worship service or approach many times they're referring to a methodology or a style of ministry a strategy of designing ministry to attract those who feel the church is irrelevant or dull this often involves removing what could be considered religious stumbling blocks such as extended worship, religious symbols, extensive prayer times, so that seekers can relate to the environment be transformed by the message of Christ. Generally, seeker-sensitive services function as entry points to a church, and a church offices offers deeper spiritual teaching than in deeper meeting settings or in small groups. He then says, a post seeker sensitive worship now today ra- promotes rather than hides full displays of spirituality. So, you know what's going on in places like Mars Hill or in Solomon's Porch in Minneapolis? That's the new churches. They have extended worship, they preach about an hour. They have religious symbols. In other words, they, the slogan is put away the drums and take out the candelabras and stained glass, they burn incense. Bring those things back. Extensive times of prayer, extensive use of scripture, so that people can experience and be transformed by the message of Jesus. This is done, however, with renewed life and is still sensitive as clear instruction and regular explanation are given. Many of the very things that we removed from our churches because they were stumbling blocks to seekers are now attractive to the younger generation. But our culture, he says, is changing previous generations grew up experiencing churches dull and meaningless so the seekers model strove to reintroduce churches relevant but emerging generations are being raised without any experience of church good or bad in recent times and this is the important characteristic this next paragraph in recent times the wave of change came to the church with a seeker sensitive movement another wave is now breaking on the shores time passes new generations are born watch this Cultures change, so the church must change. We see this in ancient history. Many call the change we are now experiencing as moving from the modern to the postmodern era. Some are moving from a Christian to a post-Christian culture. The type of change I'm talking about is not just change that happens in church services with music or small group stat- strategy. These are only surface. He's talking about a revolutionary change. He says it is a reality And the emerging church leaders must be students of the world church history to gain a proper perspective as the emerging church returns to a rawer and more vintage form of Christianity. And by the way, they refer to what they're doing as ancient future. And so even in some of the services, they read things from St. Benedict, okay? And those will be the readings today, or from Athanasius. And so they'll read. It's an interesting time we live in, folks. Very, very interesting I want to go on and just wrap up. How do we minister in a culture that thrives on change, diversity, choice, and questions absolute truth? If we were to tell folks 30, 40 years ago what church would be like ministering around 2010, I don't know that anybody would have believed us. If we would have talked about people saying things like open theism, does God know the future, people would have looked at us like, what are you talking about? The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, okay? But things are changing. Now, God called us for this hour. We're ambassadors in this world for this hour. Let me point out a couple of things. The New Testament and the examples of those first century believers still hold the key for us today. God is not surprised by any of this, folks. A smorgasbord of religions is not new. It is precisely what we find in Scripture. In the New Testament era, Paul proclaimed that Christ provided the only true gospel. He alone is the only worthy Lord among the many gods and lords. How can we express the gospel that will show... What can we do today? And how do we serve as ambassadors? Next week, we're going to talk and preach and actually then take us into passages on what Paul did. But let me tell you something here. that As we've talked about postmodernism, where truth is found in community, God was preparing us all along for everything we're encountering today. None of us need to throw our hands in the air and say, what do we do? Notice, what is the best undeniable apologetic we can put forth? What will have the most impact in bringing the next generation to Christ? I've listed three things, and with this we'll close, and I'll just point them out. Number one, community or local church. One of the hallmarks of modernity is the elevation of the individual. For 200 years, we elevated the individual above everything else. Individual human reason and individual autonomy. We dare not entirely lose the emphasis on the importance of the individual human person. Indeed, we must always keep in mind the biblical theme, God's concern for each person, and the responsibility of every human being before God to stand, and every knee will bow, and every person will give an account of himself. In the postmodern world, though, we can no longer follow the lead of modernity and position the individual at center stage. Instead, we are forced to remind ourselves that our faith is highly social. In the day, we now live in a time... And an entire generation has come up that does not think individual. They think community. And little people, an entire group of college students today, were the first generation in history that grew up from the time they were four years old on, they were part of a team. Moms took them, the dads, to soccer when they were four years old. So much so that we did, as we said, we created the name what? What are they called? Soccer moms. And Lee Iacocca and his team actually developed a vehicle for them. It's called a what? Minivan. Minivan. Okay? And so we created that for this culture. And it has the expression, leave no one behind. And so you don't give a trophy to the most valuable player. You give everybody who came out and played on the team a what? Everybody gets a trophy. See? That's the world. They think community. But guess what? God's created a community. And they can see a community in action. It's called a what? Local church. You can read more about this, okay? So members of the next generation are often unimpressed by verbal presentations. They want to see, and I'm on paragraph. Second paragraph on page 7. What they want to see, what they cannot deny, is a people who live out the gospel in real, wholesome, life-changing, healing relationships and fellowship. A community that lives this way has a drawing that is attractive and undeniable. And realize with that in mind that postmoderns want to be accepted for who they are. The local church should then offer a place where they can belong, find intimacy, deal with the pain and dysfunction or sin in a truly Christian environment. Postmoderns often stay involved in a community for long periods this is one of the things that has shocked me most as a pastor people will come to our church for weeks and weeks and weeks now in their 20s many many weeks before they ever make a decision for christ i used to be a pastor and i used to give an invitation and ask people always give a public invitation if you want to receive christ as savior come down here let's stand as we sing just as i am and people would then walk forward and receive christ as savior today that doesn't happen in that sense, they'll walk into church and they're not going to walk down that aisle to receive Christ. They want to see if it's real in the lives of the people here. And they'll watch for weeks and to see that it's made a real difference. Then I'll receive him as Savior. makes door-to-door evangelism a whole lot different than it was when I was in college. you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's different. Page number two uh, on the next page, the backside. Christians who are imbued with the Enlightenment outlook often articulate what we call a dualistic gospel. The Enlightenment project was built on the division of the mind and matter, or what we called the soul and the body. Religion was good for the soul, but science was good for the body. And we divided that into a dualism. Does that make sense? In other words, science is going to tell us where the world came from and how man evolved. Religion will tell us about salvation. That was the debate the last 200 years. For modern Christians, their primary, if not soul, concern then became the saving of the soul. However, the postmodern generation of the day now in which we live is increasingly interested in the human person as a unified whole. We know that the gospel does speak to human beings in their entirety. And we're seeing then today the effectiveness of this understanding in recent years. Notice, emphasis on sanctification as much as salvation. Affecting all areas, physical, spiritual, our marriages, our integrity, personal ethics. You're listening to things in our pulpit say we're talking as much about preventive counseling and our marriages and our homes and living the gospel every day. All right? And then wisdom over knowledge. For many, many years, the emphasis was on knowledge. God's word is interested in what? Knowledge does what? We need wisdom. And that's what the Word of God emphasizes. There's more for you to read there. Let's stand. I believe we are out of time. Gary, I don't even know if we'll sing. We're running out of time. Let me just lead us in a prayer and we'll be dismissed this evening. Would you take this sheet and read it? Next week we're going to conclude by asking, how shall then we live in this world? And we're going to deal with this matter. You and I are ambassadors for Christ. Call to this hour. How do we face that world? How do we answer this? How do we make an impact for Jesus Christ? Father, thank you for the time we've had this evening in our study. Dismiss us with your blessing, please. Use us this week. Father, as we've talked about prayer this evening and sought modeled, we talked about fellowshipping this morning with God, may this be a week that we walk closely with you. Should Jesus come, Lord, this week. We would love to be in your presence. But in the meantime, Lord, use us continue to guide and direct us. Let us love you, make a difference for you where we work, where we live, how we live, at school, at home, among our families and our friends, and here at church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.